This morning, we're going to be continuing through the book of Acts. And I'm going to say this because um, and I'm going to give you opportunity if you want to get up and go get one, you're welcome to. But we have a resource table back there. And on that resource table, there's various books. Uh, cool thing maybe to look at before you leave this morning. But on said table is uh, a ESV journaling Bible, um, essentially through the book of Acts and the book of Acts alone. So if you would like one of those before I preach, feel free to go and grab one. If not, then you don't have to. Uh, or you could get one from Jessica because she was smart enough to go and grab it for you. Thank you. Um, and so we're going to be continuing in the book of Acts. And last week, David preached verses 1 through 11 and really just opened up the chapter, looked at the ascension of Christ and all of those wonderful things. If you were not able to be here, I would encourage you to go and take a listen on Facebook if, uh, and enjoy that sermon on the first part of the book of Acts. Now, I will say this is that his sermon, um, because God has gifted him differently than me in this regard, is he's got the good gifting of preaching short sermons where I have the gift of not preaching short sermons. And so it would take a lot less time to hear his sermon than you were take this morning. Uh, but go back, take a listen to it, and uh, just enjoy hearing God's word being preached in that setting, even though it is from last week. But this morning, as we continue through the book of Acts, we're going to look at chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through verse 26. So we're going to pick up in verse 12, and we're going to knock out the rest of this chapter. Um, but before we get into all that, you know, as I was preparing for this um, and just thinking through teaching and preaching on this text, I couldn't help but think about these. Um, and this is going to start off gloomy, and it's a wonderful day for gloom, right? All the rain and all of those things. But um, we all face these moments in life, the, the dark despair or of hopelessness in a fallen world. The reality is we face these in different ways or others, uh, there's been some moments in our lives that made us even more aware of the sinfulness of the world around us, the fallen nature that sin has corrupted the things around us. Some of these moments are darker and harder than others, and some, um, but all of them remind us immediately of the effects of living in this fallen world. Some examples, and I'm going to start off a little more uh, light and soft with these. Um, but gnats, fleas, ticks, thorns, all of those horrific things in life. Mosquitoes, this one right here, apparently, that was good timing that I did not plan. These things remind us that we live in a fallen world. And that's a, a brevity there, right? But we also face things like financial troubles or sickness and pain or just sorrow. Um, and though uh, we may land different places or the other and the length of what we've been going through, but we've lived in this idea of a pandemic for years now. And so we see the fallen nature of the world around us. We see natural disasters, even though David talked about how much he loves tornadoes. Tornadoes are horrific and terrible things. Hurricanes, fires. Only last week there was some wildfires in Colorado. Loss of friendships and relationships, broken families, deaths of loved ones. See, there's things in this life that point us to this reality that the world is not like it's meant to be. The world is fallen. 
for me personally. I know it, I, I'm going to give you some personal examples, but I think if we really just sat here long enough, you would have something immediately come to your mind that really brought this reality to you better than any other moment in your life. But two things that really stood out to me. The first one, I think, is the more obvious for all of us. Um, but over the last eight years, Sarah and I have been married eight years, going on nine. We've lost her grandmother. We lost my grandmother and my uncle this past year. Those are dark moments that remind you, one, yes, of God's faithfulness in saving and redeeming a people, but the reality of sin bringing forth death that brings forth pain and sorrow. The second thing, and I think this is more applicable to what we're going to be looking at this morning, is the losing of friends. There's two ways that this has happened, and one is fairly new to me. But the two ways this has happened is uh, in churches that me and Sarah have served at. Um, one specifically uh, is when I pastored a different church. Um, people would leave a church, right, that you were close to, that you would have dinner with, that you would have into your own home regularly. And once they're no longer a part of said church, that relationship seems to get broken. That's a pastor problem, right, that you may not feel that same. But that losing of that type of friendship has, has, has haunted me in my life being a, a minister, but the second way of losing friends is something that I've dealt with in this last uh, year of planting Redeemer and pouring into individuals that are in the Air Force is uh, Josh Giorgio and Tim Ward. Um, they, I lost those friendships in a way that I was used to having them as friends in my life. Um, that's a reality of what we're trying to do here. So that's not necessarily a terrible thing, but it still hurts, right? Is that we live in a world that brokenness happens, that losing of things happen. See, the reason why I say all of this is regardless of what comes to mind for you, when you think of matters like this, there is something that stands out and just screams sin is real and messed up everything. There's no doubt in my mind that the disciples would have felt this same way in this moment mentioned in the verses that we're about to read. That sin messes everything up. See, in the wake of Jesus' ascension back into heaven, the disciples not only had to deal with the loss of the one they have been following for years, but they had a great friend of theirs, one that they had been partnered with in ministry and various things in their life over the last few years, had abandoned their master and them, and having had killed himself in response to his treason against our holy king. So it's easy for us to take and look at this and see the commitment of, of Christ and the commitment of the disciples to Christ. But it's harder for us to place ourselves in the shoes that they are dealing with things. This morning I open up this way because regardless, we see the, the railing together, the coming together, the committing themselves to prayer, eagerly awaiting the one whom Jesus promised before he was crucified, the, the great comforter, the helper that was to come. And with this in mind, what I hope that we can understand in this morning's text is this, that everything that unfolded before this moment in the book of Acts, so everything in the Gospels, everything in the first part of Acts, everything that has unfolded in the book of Acts and in Jesus' ministries and the life of the disciples was part of God's perfect will. Likewise, the will of God was still unfolding in their lives as they were preparing for the coming of the Holy Spirit. The way we're going to see that this morning is, as you see on the screen, God's will continues to unfold. But we're going to look at it in three ways. 
We're going to see the unity and prayer of the disciples. We're going to see God's word being fulfilled. And we're going to see trusting in the sovereign power of God. And as we look at all those things in this opening here, the reason for all of this is simply that God's will continues to unfold. Even in the despair and the darkness and the hardship that these disciples would have found themselves in in this moment, God was still working. And I think a similar promise is there for us today is that though we're not in the book of Acts, we are a part of God's church. And that God's will is unfolding in our lives today. And he is working all things out for his will and his glory and for our good. With all of that in mind, let's look at the scripture now. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 1. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphesus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons were all in about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with a reward of wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of all the boughs gushed out. And it became known to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Alkalamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have acquired, uh, accompanied us during all of the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he has taken us from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barabbas, who is called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two men you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We thank you for it. My prayer now as we go into a time of understanding it, God, that you would lead us in applying it as well. God, that you would take me, you would hide me behind it. God, the things that I expose about it would be the things that you would have for us this morning. We love you. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, as we look at this, we see a transitional period for the disciples. See, this is the moment in between the ascension of Christ and the 
and the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is a moment between the ascension of Christ and the day of Pentecost. So we don't know how long this period is, but what we do know is there's this period in between. But let's start in verse 12 through 14, and what we're going to be seeing in this is the unity in prayer. We're going to see the heart to the disciples in this moment. He begins by saying, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. All right, so return to Jerusalem from this mountain. We see that in verse 12. What well, in this, what we see is that they're returning to Jerusalem together was because Jesus commanded them before his ascension in verse 8. He commanded them very specific things. Look back over with me at verse 8 where it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So in the moment in which their Savior, our Savior, ascends into heaven, he leaves them with this charge, he leaves them with this comforting idea that there's going to be a moment in their life when the power will come upon them, when the Spirit will fall upon them, and when that occurs, then they are going to be his witnesses. Where are they going to be his witnesses? In Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So they return to Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where they were to start. That's where they were to begin. And so they return to Jerusalem, and we're going to see the heart of what they're doing in this time in between. But they return to Jerusalem because this is where Christ had them begin. It says a Sabbath day's journey. Um, that's hard for us to understand, but it's a uh, rabbinic uh, source of the days that would have equaled about 0.7 miles. Most likely, this is a byproduct of um, after the Dark Ages, we see the Pharisees and Sadducees coming up. And what they did was they took the law of God and they took it and they went to the extremes, kind of like we looked at in the book of Malachi. And when they did that, they put a specific steppage or specific mileage or whatever you want to call it to how far they could travel on the Sabbath day without it being considered working. And so this was a common measurement of their day. And so they're a Sabbath day away. So they're about 0.7 miles away. And they're walking back, I'm assuming, back to this place in which they were going to gather in Jerusalem. But what I want us to see in this, it says the disciples, Mary, Jesus' brothers, and some unnamed women were with them. The disciples, Mary, some women, and then Jesus' brother. Why is that important? And I'm skipping to verse 14. I'm going to get to 13 and that in just a moment. Why am I skipping to this? It's because I think this right here tells us of the seriousness of who Christ was and the importance of us looking at this as knowing that he was the Messiah. Take for his consideration. He, he's pouring into 12 men, specifically three men, and then eight more after that. And then even 70, as we're going to look at in just a moment, that he's pouring into these individuals. They're following him. But we've all seen cult leaders, right? They get a following. They get all of these things. But the reality here is that this isn't what's going on. This is a Savior. This is God himself in the flesh. And he's gathering. And as he's, after he's ascended into, the, into heaven, his disciples are gathering together. His own mother is there. Speaks to the validity of who he was. And then these unnamed women, which was common in this day and time. But the fact that Jesus' brothers were there was so significant. The reason why that's significant is because we see time and time out throughout the Gospels where they simply did not believe he was the Messiah. And we're going to look at this more in depth in a moment. I just want to touch on it here. 
but something changed in them. Or in this moment, maybe it was the resurrection and their, him returning and them seeing him, or maybe it was something else. But certainly there was this moment in which his own brothers saw him for who he was. So these individuals, they're gathered together. Where they gathered together? The upper room. In verse 13, it says, And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And then he names all of the disciples. I'm not going to read all of that again. It's not as important. Uh, we know who they are. We know that they're uh, a bunch of random type individuals. You have some fishermen. You have some zealots, which would have mean... Um, a zealot would have been someone that desired political uprising in the society that they were living in, okay? Um, and so people that were trying to overthrow the Roman government, um, that's a zealot, right? And so we can imagine how that could come and that could be applied to common day things. Uh, but outside of that, we see tax collectors, we see Jewish individuals, a bunch of random people coming together and unified, unified in what? Prayer. Let's not miss that. They're unified in prayer, that is so significant. Why is that significant, though? It's because they're in this in-between stage where their Savior has ascended into heaven. And as he's ascended into heaven, they're in the in-between phase of the Spirit coming down to them. So they're in a moment in life where they don't know what to do. But what they know they should be doing is being exactly where God, exactly where their Savior told them to be when the mission and the, and the power would come to them. So they commit themselves to prayer. In this moment, we see really the idea of the first church forming. Spirit hasn't fallen yet, but they're gathering together under the name of Christ for the purpose of praying and communicating to God. Which this brings up the question for me then, is what is the purpose of prayer? Why are they committing to praying to God together when Certainly, they could start the mission now. Go and reach Jerusalem. I mean, these are men that God has used in a way to heal uh, sick individuals, to cast out demons. Why are they not presumptuous in going out into society trying to reach it? Because they rightly understood at this point in their life that they needed the power of the Spirit to lead and guide them. And prayer shows us a commitment to leaning in and trusting in God. For example, when you pray, maybe go back to those dark moments in life. When you pray and you communicate with God and you pour your heart out to him, you want to see something change. You want to see something in your own heart change. Whatever the case may be, there's always a question of what is the point of prayer? And the point of prayer is to position your desires and your heart with the position of God. It's leaning in and trusting in God and being okay with whatever God desires to do within your circumstances. And the way that we experience that and the way that we live that out is by praying and trusting and leaning into God. Saying, God, I don't know what to do in this circumstance. I don't know what to do to overcome this. I don't know what to do to make this happen. But what I do know is that you're a good and loving and sovereign and powerful God that is going to do something. So they commit themselves together. Why? Waiting and praying, unified under Christ together for God to deliver the Spirit to them so they can go on their mission. But in the in-between time, they commit to prayer. I think the application is simple here for us. And I could 
work my way through Scripture. I can find secondary texts to encourage you to pray and the benefits of praying, the meaning of prayer, all of those things. But in this moment, after this dark despair moment happened where their Savior is no longer with them, one of their best friends have now not only died, but have hung himself to die. They gather together under Christ, praying together for God's will to be done. I want to call us to the same mindset that we as a church, that we as Redeemer Church, that we as an elder board, elder team at Redeemer, that we as a congregation at Redeemer, for you as an individual, for you as a family, that you would commit your life to prayer. Certainly there's other things you're called to do and should do to grow in your understanding of who God is and all of those wonderful things. But committing with prayer and committing to prayer is one of the most basic ways that we're trying to align ourselves in the will of the Father. So let's take the example of the disciples here and let's lean into that. And let's be a people and let's be a church that's committed to prayer. And what I would argue is that as we commit ourselves, we commit our families, and commit our church to prayer, is that we would find unity together. Not in unity in the sense that we're going to come to the same conclusions, that we're going to come to the same convictions, that we're going to come to the, the same responding by prayer alone. But if we're first and foremost committing to prayer for the power of God to lead, to guide, and direct us to accomplish His mission in our lives and in Columbus and the surrounding areas, if we're committing to prayer, then we're going to find ourselves unified under the one who gives us the ability to communicate to God through prayer. So the first thing we see that God's will continues to unfold is the commitment to prayer and the unity that comes there with it. The second thing, as we look at God's will continues to unfold, is that God's word is being fulfilled. This right here is a weird section for us, because ultimately what you're going to look at, verse 15 through 20, is this reality that God, before Judas even enters the scene, knew exactly what would happen to Christ through Judas. And not only did he know what was going to happen, but this is the way in which he had planned for it to happen. So this is a very hard thing is God is all powerful, all knowing, but God is not evil and not the worker of evil. But he certainly uh, allows man's man's evil to lead to a better good. Okay, and that's what we see here, because even the act of Judas turning into turning in Jesus was a means in which God was unfolding his perfect will. So let's look at it together. Verses 15 through 20. Starting verse 15, it says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120 and said. I'm going to pause there because I want us to remember who Peter is. Uh, Peter is certainly a man of God. Peter is one of the primary individuals that we're going to look at in verses uh, in chapter 1 through chapter 12 of the book of Acts. But who is Peter? What do we know of Peter outside of the fact he's the guy that cut off the, the soldier's ear, that he was the guy that Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. Who is Peter? Peter is the one that in Luke twenty two fifty four through 62 denies Jesus three times. But what's so interesting about that is right before that encounter unfolded, Peter is also the one that our Savior, Christ, looks at 
It says you're the one who's called to strengthen his brothers after he has been tested. We find that in Luke 22, 31 through 32. Peter is the one in John 21, 15 through 17 that Jesus restores and proclaims his love to him. So Peter was certainly a man of fault. He was a man that flew by the seat of his pants, whatever that really means, right? He was a man that um, he acted before he thought. He responded before he considered. Peter was a man that worked in the moment rather than thinking through things. But Peter was the man in which God desired to do exactly what he's about to do in this moment. So Peter, he stands in an company of about 120 people. In verse 15, that's what it says. In parentheses, a company of about 120. We don't know exactly who makes up this number of 120 um, my assumptions and my uh, conclusion would simply be is that during the ministry of Jesus, we see that he sends out the 12, but later he sends out 70. So if you do your math, that's about 82, right? But we also saw in just the previous verses uh, that there were women that were gathered with him, most likely the women that ministered to Jesus um, during his time in Jerusalem and his, in his life, but also gathered there was... Um, his brothers. We know of four brothers. We know of um, the conversion, really, of some brothers. We see that James uh, was converted uh, after the in First Corinthians five, fifteen verse seven. We see that jo- Joseph, J O S E S, and then Judas and Simon, Simon, all brothers of Jesus. So about four individuals there. Um, and so what we see in that is that there's 120 people. We don't know who they are, but I would argue that's probably the 70 that were sent out, the 12 disciples, and then this other uh, group of individuals that were already gathering in the same city with them. So he stands up and he says brothers, which is a very masculine term. Uh, it's brothers translated rightly. It's talking about multiple men. All right. But most likely, like I said, there's women gathered in the crowd. So it's not like there's not women there, but he's speaking directly to the men, per se. All right. So he says, brothers, scriptures have been fulfilled. We see this in verse 16 and verse 20. Well, he specifically says the scriptures had been fulfilled. But in verse 20, he says, for it has been written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one dwell in it and let another take his office. So in verse 20, he's quoting two scriptures in Psalms. He's quoting Psalm 69, 25, that says, May their camp be desolate, let no one dwell in their tents. So a verbatim translation. And then Psalms 41, 9, that sees it says, Even my close friend in whom, oh, I'm sorry, Psalm 109, 8 is that one. It says, May his days be few and may another take his office. So in these two psalms, what we see quoting here is Judas' portrayal and Judas' replacement. So look at these words in Psalm 69-25. May their camp be desolate, let no one dwell in their tents. That's exactly what the author was explaining in verse 19 when it says that this field had become, became known as the field of blood because the people of Jerusalem would not purchase it. They would not live there. It was against their the Levitical law. 
They would not purchase and live in this land. Possibly someone in the Roman Empire would have eventually, but certainly no Jewish individuals in Jerusalem. So we see the the betrayal of Jesus of Judas by Jesus of Jesus by Judas, but we also see this call to replace his office in verse Psalm one hundred nine verse eight. It says, "May his days be few, and may another take his office." So we see this fulfilling of Scripture. Psalm sixty nine and Psalm one hundred nine was written a long time before this encounter happened. What I want us to pull from that is that God's word was being fulfilled. Even in the sinful actions of Judas, God was working in the midst of that. We could bring comfort in that, is that even when we are dealt, we deal with the darkness and the despair and the hardships of this life, God is still at work. That even when we find ourselves sinning, Scripture tells us that His grace abounds even more. That God can take broken things and make a great, great, great picture of it. That God can take, take broken things and make them whole again. And use them for his glory and his honor. Verse 18 through 19. I don't want to read all of that again. But this is the moment in which Judas dies. Uh, he goes into detail and the details of that is that Judas hangs himself and presumably stays in the tree long enough to where his body is rotten and that he falls to the ground and it, his guts come out of him, okay? Making the land tainted and all of those things. When you read Matthew 27, 3 through 10, though, and I just want to touch on this because there's moments in Scripture where it almost appears, if you don't really dig deeper, it almost appears to seem that Scripture is conflicting with one another, Right? Uh, I think that's a reality that we should face, that there's doubts that come in this. There's moments in Scripture where if we don't really dig into it, people could take and twist it to say that God's Word is contradicting each other. We see that argument uh, much with the idea of you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And then you have the book of James that says that faith without works is dead, right? It almost seems like they're competing with one another. They're not. They're complementing one another. Matthew 27, 3 through 10 would almost seem like it's competing with this. Because when you read that account, you see this moment in which Judas decides to take the money back to the leadership and give it back to them so that Jesus would not be killed. And their response is that it's too late. And he then gives the money away. He throws it, them, throws it at them, essentially. And then they take the money, and they don't want to keep it because they know it's blood money. So they take the money. They buy a field in his name. And in buying the field in his name, it then tells us that he hangs himself. It doesn't go into the details here. It doesn't unfold a lot of the things going on here. But a lot of things in Acts doesn't meet up directly with what's going on there. So what I would put there for us very simply is when you read Matthew 27, 3 through 10, you see a big picture of what happened. And then when you read Acts chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, you see a brief summary by Luke. Why is Luke writing the summary? Because though there's arguments of who Theopolis is, is he an individual or is he just believers altogether? Regardless, Luke is writing an historical account of the life of Jesus and the life of the early church, right? And so he's writing this historical account. He's put it in parentheses here so we can understand who Judas was to make sense of it. Because if we really pay attention, if you go back and read... um, Verse 13, 
the very last person he speaks of is Judas, the son of James. Judas is a common name. So he's speaking directly about a specific man named Judas, and he's giving us the context, context here. But he's not going to go into all of those details. He's just giving us the summary of what happened. So all of that being said, I think as we look at this, I think what we should focus on and understand more than anything is verse 16 and 20 is the scriptures have been fulfilled. That's the first words of Peter as he stands before his people. The scriptures had been fulfilled. But how have they been fulfilled? What scriptures is he talking about? Which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. He's not mixing words here. He's being direct. that These scriptures are specifically speaking of Judas. The one who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. I said this earlier. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around it completely. The death of Christ was by no accident. The death of Christ did not come to a surprise to God. Nor did Judas' betrayal. But it was to fulfill scripture. But they're not done with that. They're going to talk about one more more time fulfilling of scripture. But what I want us to see in this for us And I think the application for us is Scripture has been fulfilled. And I know you can get into the book of Revelation and you can talk about some Scripture that may may or may have not been fulfilled quite yet. But overall, the Scripture of salvation and the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, all of that has been fulfilled. But there's a reality to our salvation. And our salvation is Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of God. So what we should learn in all of this is if God could sovereignly write something through the mouth of David in the book of Psalms that was, un, that was fulfilled in the wickedness of man thousands of year, a thousand or so years later, certainly God will not allow his word today turn back void. And what I mean by this is that we should trust in the word of God. Not only in our personal lives, not only as a devotional thing, not only as we preach the word of God, but as we go out and we proclaim the gospel, as we go out and we teach the word of God, as we go out and make disciples, that we should be trusting in the word of God to do so. Certainly there's other aids that will help us. Certainly, um, as many of you know, I, I read a book called uh, What is the Gospel by Non-Marks. That is how I frame the gospel when I talk to somebody. That God is perfect. God is holy. He's creator of all. So therefore, all creation is accountable to him, which is terrible news. Why? Because man is sinful, fallen. Not only Adam and Eve, but all people that have come thereafter. And the only hope that we can find is in Christ Jesus to save and to redeem us by his perfect work upon the cross. So that those who would believe and trust in him can be saved. What is the gospel? God, man, Christ's response. That is a formula of presenting the gospel. But it is grounded in the truth of God's word. See, the reality here is when we go out and we proclaim the gospel, as we go out and we make disciples, certainly there's third sources that we can use, but our primary hope is in the power of God to save. And we see that here. And the fact that God is still fulfilling the words that he wrote through his men thousands of years prior. And certainly that same promise is for us today as we be people that seek to do what he's called us to do in our lives. The third thing we're going to look at this morning 
is found in Acts chapter 1, 21 through 26. And what we're going to see is that trusting in the sovereign power of God. He says in verse 21, it begins by saying, so. Some translations may actually say, therefore. Um, and so the word so or the word therefore is connecting what he's saying now to something previously. Direct, in this context, he's connecting it directly to what he just said. The idea of fulfilling of scriptures. He says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all of the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So one of the men. What he's saying here is therefore as a continual fulfillment of scripture that we have to do something now. And what they're called to do is to find one man among them. 120 people, one man among them. And this man had to be a very specific man. He had a very specific qualifications. He had to be the right man. It couldn't just be any man among the 120. What did this man have to be? Verse 22. Uh, end of 21, verse 22. It, during all the time in which the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these mans must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So the man they had to pick, the man they had to determine was going to replace Judas, had to be one that followed Jesus this entire ministry. They had to be one that when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, to when Jesus was resurrected, it had to be someone that was there for all of those things. It couldn't have been one of the 12 because they've already seen all these things. So it, came from, it had to have come from one of the 70 that he sent out, right? They were the ones that were there from the beginning. And what we see in that is that they were looking for something very specific, the, right, the correct qualifications. Why? Because this was to fulfill Scripture. It had to be this way. As we just read in Psalms 109, 8. May his days be few, may another take his office. It had to be the man with the right qualifications. So to fulfill this, what do they do? They put up two men. So that tells you how narrow their choices were. They find two men that's within 120. You can do the math to tell me what that percentage is. They find two men, uh, maybe even arguably do it out of 70, but they find two men of this, this group of people and say, hey, these two guys, they've been there this whole time. They've been there this entire time in Jesus' ministry. They saw the resurrection. These are the two guys that you get to choose from. And this laid to the, the, the congregation or the church per se. This isn't an official church, right? They don't have constitution, bylaws. But there's 120 people gathered together under the name of Christ, establishing leadership among their group, right? They're establishing a church here. And as they're doing this, they say, these are the two men. And how do they determine these two men? I find this so interesting. Obviously, they prayed. We're going to get to that in a moment. But they cast lots. It sounds so backwards to me, right? So they find two men. Instead of talking amongst the 120, taking a vote like we would do nowadays, what do they do? They cast lots. I don't know exactly what that would have looked like. I don't know if they made them roll dice or they made them put their backs to each other and play paper, rock, scissors like I do with my kids. I don't know how they determined this, but they did some kind of... Uh, Ritual that made it clear which one of the two that they were installing as the next disciple. But why? 
Why would they do this practice? We're going to get to that after we look at the prayer. It says they prayed, verse 24. Let's look at 24 all together in 25. It says, and they prayed and said. I want to emphasize, it says, and they prayed. It didn't say, and Peter prayed. The, the, the congregation, the people, the people of God, they prayed t- together. They were praying, I don't know if it was out loud, one at a time, all of those things, it doesn't matter. They were committed to prayer together. As we've already looked at that, a similar calling for us, a similar commitment for us. They're praying together. What are they saying? You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Let's say you, Lord. The Lord, Lord here is most certainly talking about Jesus. Praying to Jesus saying, who do you have to take Judas's spot? You pick Judas. You pick the other 11 disciples. We're trusting you to pick this next one. Who do you have? And what is their reasoning? Why are they praying this to him? As I said earlier, it's a dependence upon God. Specifically, they say, who know the hearts of all. You, Jesus, who know the hearts of men, who, who know all things, you who have all power, you who are sitting on the throne, you are the one in control, you are the one that chose us, you are the one that has established us, you are going to have to be the one that shows us which of these two men that you have for us. Then they cast lots. Proverbs 16.33 says the lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. God is so powerful and all-knowing and sovereign, whatever attribute you want to put there, that even the lots that fall is by his sovereign will. They understood that. But I want to be clear about this. Is this is the last time in church history in the New Testament relating to believers who have trusted in Jesus, this is the last time we see this practice instituted. No other time will you see them casting lots. Why? Because chapter 2 hasn't happened yet. The day of Pentecost hasn't occurred. The Spirit is not within them yet. So their prayer is, God, you know all. You're in control of all. We know that as we cast these lots, you have control over all things, and you're going to make it fall on the man you have for the job. And so they do that. If that's not trust, I don't know what is. When we started the process of installing and working through the process of David and Troy being elders here, we didn't, I didn't just, in my mind, or, you know, I didn't go on the computer and type in every man's name within the church that I thought was qualified into a system-generated um, casting system of who should be that, right? It was a leading of the Spirit of God. It wasn't a by chance here. And here, that's certainly all it was. Is God, you know all. You have power over even the lots. We saw that in Jonah, right? They cast lots, these pagans cast lots, and it falls on who? Jonah. Because God is in control of these things. So they cast lots, it falls on Matthias, 
and they set him aside for the work of being a part of the apostles. They're certainly trusting in the sovereign power of God by casting lots so that this man can be the man for the job. What do we learn from that, though? We should do the same thing. Trusting in the sovereign power of God to fulfill his ministry. We're going to get into this more in the next few weeks, I'm certain of it. But we have the Spirit of God that now lives within us. And so the the two scriptures I'm going to start off reading as a reference to this, we have what they were waiting for. Acts 1.8, But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria, the ends of the earth. That we have the power of God that lives within us through the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, we just lead, allow Him to lead and guide and direct us. We commit to doing His work and we're trusting in His power to save us. Not only to save us, but to, to guide us to do His work. I'm not trusting in my ability to plant a church in Columbus, Mississippi or in Troy's or David's or anyone else's. I'm trusting in the sovereign power of God to do so. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. David's going to read this in a moment, but I'm going to read it here. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's establishing his authority here. And then he commissions them and says, Go therefore and make disciples. But then he ends it in verse 20. um, And he says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That he books in this commandment to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you have my power and I am with you. We're called to trust in the sovereign power of God to fulfill his ministry. But what we have to understand about that, it's not that we just come and we attend church, or it's not that we just go to our homes and we hang out and chill with our families, or that we go to our jobs and come home. It's not that we don't think of these things. It's not that we're not committed to proclaiming the gospel and make disciples. And God will just do what he wants, that God will just magically save people. We're not people that think that we don't have to go out and do something. Think Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 is clear about this. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, meaning that we are God's, we're saved by Christ. Why? For good works. That we're called to go and to do. But even in this scripture, it doesn't stop there. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we're called to go and to proclaim the gospel, make disciples, love individuals, love those around us, meet the needs of individuals that we can so that we can open the doors to have a good reputation with those around us. Why? So that we could walk in what? The good works when the God prepared before us. That once again, we're trusting in the sovereign power of God to fulfill his ministry. But we rightly understand it's not calling us to idleness, but rather calling us to action. An action that is relying on his power and not our own. As we've explored and waited our way through Acts chapter 1, 12 through 26, my hope is this. And that we see this. That we see that everything that unfolded before this moment in the book of Acts and in Jesus' ministry. And even in the life of the disciples was part of God's perfect will. Likewise, the will of God was still unfolding in their lives. And we're preparing for the coming of the Holy Spirit. That we would rightly see that the will of God is still working out in the life that we live today. 
that we would also understand rightly that God's will continues to unfold, that it leads us to be unified in prayer. It calls us to uh, be understanding that God's word is being fulfilled, so therefore we can lean into that. And it leads us to trust in the sovereign power of God. As um, Troy comes and gets ready to set up for song, our last song together, my prayer for us is very simply this. That as God's children, we would lean into and trust God's word and power to empower us to share the gospel, make disciples, while being, we are being unified in this mission through prayer. For those that are here that may not know Christ or those that are watching that may not know Christ, it would be simply that God would save and redeem you, that he would call your name, he would pull you to him, and then that you would respond accordingly. The fact that after his death, burial, resurrection, even ascension, what we find in that room is his own brothers, Jewish individuals, that had a brother that was hanged on a cross. Why was he hanged on the cross? Because he committed blasphemy in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. Which means that their calling then as Jewish individuals would be to cut him off completely. To have nothing to do with him. And if they did, they would be excommunicated from the Jewish community. And so for the simple fact that his own brothers and mother was in that room waiting for the Spirit of God to pour upon them and to give them the power to go and to do. I think this is just a wonderful example for us in understanding that we have a God that redeems and saves his people through the finished work of Christ. So my prayer is simply is that we would be people that would go and do while trusting in his word and power. And for those who don't know him, that you would come to know him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. God, my prayer now as we go into this last song together, that you would just allow us to worship you together one last time before we go. And God, let us be men and women that go therefore and make disciples of all nations. God, by any chance someone here or on the video that does not know you, God, my prayer is that you would do that. You would save them. You would redeem them. That you would work in their lives in a way that they would understand and know rightly that when after that encounter, God, they experienced you. We love you and we praise you. In your son's holy name, amen.